Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. That still is to date the most terrifying decision I made in my entire life. I felt very confident that I would either get what I wanted or die. He is the man behind acquisition.com. It is the one and only Alex Harmozy. Alex has been absolutely taking the internet by storm over the last year or two. My dad always told me that you only get one name, so invest in it accordingly. If that's the price I have to pay to make the impact I want to have, and I pay that price every time. So what changed? <laughs> Kylie Jenner. Kylie Jenner changed my life. You're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast, the number one business podcast in the U.S., where we talk about entrepreneurship, money, and how to improve your life and achieve success. I'm your host, Erica Kohlberg. I'm a lawyer and personal finance expert with over 20 million followers on social media. Today, I'm going to talk with Alex Hermosi. He's an entrepreneur, and him and his wife were able to generate $120 million across four different industries. In this episode, Alex and I talk about his journey to success, how to put in the hours, and the power of using social media. He gives his best advice for entrepreneurs and what we should be aiming for when building a business. I'm Erica Kohlberg, this is Erica Taught Me, and today we're here with Alex Hermosi. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between 6 to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between 6 to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28, so go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com slash invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. So Alex, what is a view that you have that got you to where you are at today that most people disagree with? 
So I guess the more commonly held view, so I'll answer the question in a roundabout way. The more commonly held view is that things should be fast and they are just missing this one thing. And if they had that one thing, they would be successful. But the reality is it isn't one thing. It's a hundred small things. And if you can accept that it's a hundred small things, then you don't expect something to happen overnight and you don't expect some secret that you're going to find. You don't put uh, your hope in a mentor or to be a savior for you. And you realize that you were the only person who's going to have complete control over your own life. You're the only one who can at least influence it. And so if you shift to that mentality, then everything's your fault. And then you actually can start making progress. And what did it take for you to realize that? I think I always thought that. I think I always thought that. I, you know, I had a Middle Eastern father, immigrant, came here with nothing. So there was never a, there was never an illusion that work was not required to get to where you wanted to go. I think that the, the, the moment where it really shifted, though, was probably in college. I was about 19. And everything had come easy to me. Like, uh, school-wise, I did really well. I was president of, like, the newspaper and the, and the, the literary magazine. I was actually vice president of the newspaper. President of the creative magazine. Um, and so I, did, I just did really well with those things. I was in three varsity sports, like, all that stuff. But in college, I went to Vanderbilt, and everyone there was really smart. I was like, oh, okay. So... I just always expected I could just not say for anything and like I would ace it and I didn't have that happen. And so I ended up going fall break with like a one Oh <laughs> GPA, which is bad. Uh, and so he was like, Hey, I'm just not going to keep you in school if this is what's going to happen. So I didn't go out, didn't do anything for the remainder of the semester. And I think I finished with a three, two. So I basically got an A on every single assignment from that point going forward. And he said, cool. So now that we know what you're capable of, that's the expectation. And so bar was set and, um, that was probably the moment, though, where I tied hours of work to outcome. And then that just became my MO. Like, everyone knew it was like, Hermosi's in class, at the library, at the gym, or at the cafeteria. There's the four things from nine to nine every day. And so I started taking being a student like a job. And so it was nine to nine every day. And I've, I've pretty much worked 12 hours a day since then. But it was just being okay with the fact that things were going to take time. And I had to do them for an inordinate period of time without convincing myself I was smarter than I was uh, and let time have its moment. Yeah. And after college, you went to this very traditional route of going into management consulting. Yeah. And you eventually quit that yeah. to start the gyms. Yes. Can you talk about that moment where you decided that I'm going to quit, I'm going to try something different that's not on that standard path? Yeah, that still is to date the most terrifying decision I made in my entire life. And so for anybody who's on that, on that edge or that precipice, like I can only promise you that it actually just gets easier. Because like once you burn the boats there, you know, I, I had to do this risk analysis, which was, okay, if I continue down this path, I am guaranteed to not get what I want. On this other path, I'm not guaranteed to get it, but I have a shot at getting it. And so from a risk-adjusted basis, it made more sense for me to risk it because it was the only chance I had at getting what I wanted, which for me, my, my mental math at the time was I wanted to make a million dollars a year and I wanted to not work that much. That was at least my like, thought process at the time. And I figured that if any company would pay me a million dollars a year, because it's really, at least at that point, I only saw two main tracks for that, which would be investment banking, you know, finance slash management consulting. Those are kind of like the only two paths that I could see in front of me that would pay me that kind of money. But I knew that if I was going to get paid a million dollars a year, they're going to be ripping $10 million out of my soul every year. And so that didn't seem like an acceptable outcome. And so I, uh, seeing that, um, I decided to um, quit the really prestigious job that looked great on LinkedIn and Facebook and all my college friends and all that stuff um, to start a gym, which, you know, 
my parents were thrilled about with my Vanderbilt education that that's where I was uh, choosing to go. But again, it was, it was from a risk standpoint, a lot of people say like, I want to be a business owner someday. But I thought, well, what, like, what would I have to use as qualifiers for what someday would look like? Like, what would that day have to look like in order for it to happen? And I reasoned at least that the later I got in my life, the harder it would be to change because I would be making more money in the future than I was today. I would have more responsibilities than I do today. I would have wives, kids, et cetera. I'd also probably have more asset. I'd probably have a house, bigger, you know, car, whatever. And so it seemed to me that the lowest risk time that I would be able to course correct if I failed was in my 20s. And so that plus the, what I was saying earlier about guaranteed to not get what I wanted to go. Um, for those two reasons, I took the jump. But it still took me six months to make the jump. And I talked to like my closest friend at the time pretty much every day for like an hour, just heeing and hawing and heeing and hawing until finally I, um, I called him when I was like in Ohio and I'm from Maryland. And I didn't want to let anybody know that I had left because I didn't want anyone to talk me out of it. And so that's, that was what ended up, you know, being the, the breaking point to, to get there. Are you typically very calculated in your decisions? Like all of your decisions take those six months or do you go with your gut now where you make a decision in a spur of moment? It's not a gut thing. I think I'm pretty calculated with decisions, but I don't think that decisions need to take a long time. And I think that I would say that as, as, we've, as we've progressed in business, our speed of decision-making has decreased. You know what I mean? Because I'm also, I can accept mistakes much more easily now and realize that most of the biggest mistakes have come from delay more than actual wrong doings. Cause a lot of times it's like happy to glad decisions. It's like, okay, should we rent or should we buy the building? It's like, ah, but like, will either of them have like a material out, like change in our, in our lives? No. So I just basically put decisions in two buckets, which is, is it a reversible decision or an irre irreversible decision? And then if it is irreversible, to what degree is it irreversible? So like having a kid, very irreversible, uh, marriage, less irreversible, but also but still pretty, pretty irreversible, tough, right? To get out of there. You know, where we're going to go for lunch today is like irreversible, but very low stake. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. that's, it's an irreversible, which I think is why partially why people struggle with it so much because it is an irreversible decision, but it also doesn't matter. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, which I do think as a hack is just knowing what you eat for most of the meals that you have just makes life so much easier and wastes so much less time. But on the reversible decision side, then those ones, we just say, I like using the term, what's my best bad guess? Caleb's probably heard me say this a hundred times. Um, I'm like, this is my best bad idea. Or this is my best bad guess. And so it just, it, it sets the bar lower for the expectation of yourself and others. Not to say that you don't have high, you know, high expectations of yourself, but in terms of like having a way to put language around decreasing your action threshold to do something, um, just saying, hey, this is my best bad idea. And we only commit to one thesis at acquisition.com and everything we do, which is test and iterate. Yeah. So that's what we commit to. We're not committing to this path. We're committing to test and iterate. And this is just the first test. And so seeing it that way, then it makes it just a tiny test on a much bigger process that we're all aligned with always. So it's just the only decision is which test we're going to run first, which is just less. I know when I, so I was a corporate lawyer. I left this very prestigious law firm. And when I was going through that decision, similar to you, I was just thinking, what is the best case scenario? What is the worst case scenario? And for me, the worst case scenario was like, maybe I would fail, but I would go back to find a law job. Like yeah. it's a degree that you can typically find a job with. When you were going through that decision, what was your best case scenario? What was the outcome you wanted? And then what would, what would have been the worst case scenario? So best case scenario is what I'm doing now. Um, worst case scenario was I would have a really good, uh, essay for business school because I already took the GMAT too, because I wanted to like really shore up my options. 
I had already applied to get a master's in accountancy too, because I figured if I had that plus my two years of management consulting, I would be positioned to do finance or management consulting really well going into B school. And I and I I'd read that you know they liked having some entrepreneurial experience if you have that. And so to me, it was just that was actually a really big point um, from a like the downside protection. It's like best case, I I actually succeed, and I I'll, I'm gonna zoom out for a second. When I looked at business school, for me, it was. 200 grand in like opportunity cost, like hard cost plus what I wasn't going to make, probably more than that, 250. And then at the end of that, the median salary, I think was like 110 or 120 from Harvard, somewhere in there, right? And so I figured if I took $250,000 and I took two years, I thought I could get close to making what my median was, except I would already be living my, I'll be a business owner someday. And then I could, you know, scale past that. And so that was kind of like the reasoning on that side. But to your point about the uh, knowing that I could use it in an essay, which sounds so silly, um, <laughs> to increase my likelihood of getting into a good school um, actually was one of the major factors of me being okay of taking the jump. It's interesting because I went through the same process. I wanted to go to business school too at, when I was already a lawyer at the JD law MBA. Yeah. Oh, so oh. I took the GMAT while I was working these 100-hour weeks. Yeah, and same. I think looking back at it, I think I wanted the Harvard or the Stanford yeah. as a crutch to validate that I was a good entrepreneur. Like, I'm so glad that I didn't end up going that path because yeah. I think it would have been a two-year waste of my time and a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, the, I'll say the one thing with, uh, with like the, the super high-tier schools, it's just the network. I mean, you're paying for a mastermind of sorts for, you know, 200 grand or 250 grand for them to screen high likelihood people who you're going to want to do business with in the future. And so I think in that way, that's, that's the main value yeah. besides that, you know, I think the rest of it is like, I mean, most of it, half of it's like socializing. Like they even build that in cause they know that's the value. Isn't it funny though? Now that we have social media followers, we can DM people. It's like the same network effect as an MBA. Oh yeah. You could post a story and just be like, anybody know an amazing commercial real estate attorney who does deals over 50 million. And then like, you'll get like 60 M's and you're like, perfect. Wonderful. Yeah, easy. You just tap in. <laughs> you know, it's funny because this was a topic that Caleb and I've had a lot of talks about because I'm sure because you're, you, you see the TikTok world and, and the shorts world and we're just barely getting into it. The amount of uh, guruism around like networking, like networking trip tips and tricks and hacks and stuff. And networking has never been an issue for me because I, th at least my perspective on it has been if I provide sufficient value to everyone in my network, by extension, have access to everyone who I've already provided value to. And so it's like Joe Rogan doesn't need to do, go to networking events like he's Joe Rogan. There was a, a neighbor I had who had a little kid who was eight years old. We were driving somewhere, just got an ice cream, kids in the back. And she was saying, you've got to know the store owners. So like, these are the, and, she, and she said it, and then she like turned around because she wanted to teach her kid a lesson. And she was like, these are the types of people you have to know. You have to know these people, all right? Because you have to stay in contact and you have to know this stuff. And I remember hearing that and thinking to myself, I was like, no. I was like, I'm the person that everyone needs to be in contact with. And it was just a difference in worldview. Like, and it was fun. And, sh and, and she was a super networker. Like, but she had not, she'd never seen herself as the person to provide value. It was always like, how do I manage all of these hundreds of acquaintances? And she was an amazing networker. But it was just a different view. And I feel like, I mean, they're both fine. I just, for me, it was better suited my personality that way. You mentioned earlier that when you quit your job, your best case scenario is where where you're at right now, what you're doing. How would you describe that? And did you really anticipate that that's, that would have been your best case scenario? Yes and no. Ultra success, yes. Path, no. Yeah. I felt very confident that I would either get what I wanted or die. And I mean that genuinely. So I knew that I was I was just going to continue. You know what I mean? Because I was just in a tremendous amount of pain and the need of validation from exterior. 
that that pain was motivation enough for me to just continue to drive no matter what happened until I got where I wanted to be. Now, obviously I have new goals now, but and they're motivated a little bit differently, but by and large, yes, I did think that I was going to be successful. Did I think it was going to be necessarily through gyms and then a gym turnaround business? And then like, no, I didn't think that was. And I think that's kind of the, the push and pull of being opportunistic when, when things open up, but also being dedicated to the long-term path. If you're listening, let me guess. You have a passcode on your phone. And let me take another wild guess and say that you have a password on your computer. But why are so many of us okay just being completely unprotected online? We have no idea who has all our personal information online and whether it's the good guys or the bad guys who might be selling your information or worse. We're talking spammers, telemarketers, robocallers, people who want to know more about you and even where you live. My sister had her data leaked online and because of that, her identity was stolen and it was a nightmare to deal with. We had to lock down all her credit cards just for starters. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Aura, a sponsor of this episode. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your info and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. When I discovered it, I knew I had to try it out just to see if my information had been leaked online, which they let me see instantly after I signed up. And get this, for my audience, they're offering a free 14-day trial so you can see if your personal information has been leaked online. To find out now, go to ericataughtme.com slash Aura to claim your free 14-day trial. Erica with a K and Aura is spelled A-U-R-A. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash Aura. And I'll also leave the link in the show notes. Do you still feel like you need the validation? Probably to a degree. Yeah. I think a lot of it even just comes from internal validation. Like, I want to prove it to me. Like, I want to prove it to me. And so I think that's where a lot of it comes from now. I'm sure, th- I'm sure there is some external stuff because humans are social creatures. And like, if everyone hated me tomorrow, I'm sure I'd have a bad day. But I think it, I would just say it's shifted in percentage. I would say, you know, when I, when I was 19, it was 99.999, everybody else, and 0.001% me. And maybe now I'm 60-40, you know, maybe 70-30 if I'm lucky, I'm having a good day. But, you know, my goal is just to just increase that percentage over time and maybe die close to 90-ish. <laughs> <laughs> what was the first taste of success you had that gave you validation that maybe that was the right decision to quit and leave my job? I actually saw pretty rapid success with the gym. Um, so I was fortunate in that way. I made profit every month. Uh, well, the first month I broke even. The sec- second month I made $5,000, which was what I was making at the consulting job more or less. The next month I made 10000 Next month I made fifteen, twenty, and then it kind of went from there. And so... I had immediate validation. I would say I didn't feel secure. I felt like it was going to be over tomorrow, always. Um, I would say that that feeling has taken a long time to get rid of. Um, and I would say that truthfully right now, I don't have that feeling. But I have certainly had that um, at times with gym launch in the earlier days, Prestige Labs in the earlier days, the gyms, absolutely. When I was running those, I was like, tomorrow everything could go away. <laughs> you know. So I think that that, that has diminished. Um, but yeah, from, a, from the get-go, um, and that's probably not the, the standard entrepreneur story, but I slept at the gym. I mean, I, people hear the sleeping, sleeping in the gym part, and they're like, oh, like he went through the grind, and I did. But I was also like stacking every single dollar that came in and just plowing it in my bank account because I had no employees. And the only thing I paid for every month was the rent for the facility. And I did everything to run an entire gym. As w- like, ima- like imagine a gym you walk into and there's no employees. There's one guy. And I did that for like six months. 
What is now to you? Is now what you're doing hard or are you in an easy phase? Hard changes. Like the, like the way the heart feels is different. So like when I was starting out, the heart was just sheer exhaustion and fatigue of just like my first session was started at 4.30. My last sales consult ended at, at, at 10 o'clock at night. And then I would do all the billing um, and process all the contracts and whatnot, which ended at 11.30. And then I would sleep right there, like on the floor. Uh, and then I did that because I didn't have to save the commute time. And then I would just wake up in a cold terror of stress and I would be up and my shirt would be clinging to me because it's soaked in stress sweat. So that was that. That's what it felt like then. Um, when like when we started doing gym launch, the stress was more around like money. It was cash flow issues of, okay, we're, we're launching all these, you know, we're launching eight gyms next month. I've got a front hotels, airfare, rental car, per diems, uh, ad spend, get all those, you know, campaigns up and running. And I had to front all that cash off of last month's set. Like, so it was more like a managing the cash that was coming into the business thing, which was super stressful, but that was the different kind of stress. Uh, gym launches, uh, hard was, well, one, it was realizing that there was an opportunity in licensing and just called digital products or B2B services um, that weren't like in person. Like that was the huge, that was the big unlock when we went from a few hundred thousand dollars a month, I think we were like three or 400 um, when we were doing like turnarounds in person uh, to, you know, two or three, you know, when we ended like four and a half million a month, just riding that. But there the issues were me. And so it was my character traits that were the deficiency at that point. So I feel like I had to change. Now I'm sure I had to grow at all these stages, but like my ability to handle stress in general, my focus had to increase because when you were a small business owner, you can, you can shift the ship really you know, quickly. You can turn, you can pivot and all that kind of stuff. But when you have hundreds of families that are if just on the employee side, but thousands, if you include the customer base that are relying on you, it's like, you can't make these snap decisions anymore. And so it's like, I had to calm down and become less erratic. And that's where the stress and emotional tolerance fed into, okay, we have a bad day. It doesn't mean we need to change the strategy. It just means you had a bad day. And then what do you do? Nothing. <laughs> That's all it is. So one of the things that it's been a huge epiphany for me as we've gone through this journey is that, because I talk about character traits a lot, because when we look at portfolio companies, for the most time, we're betting on the jockey. I mean, like we understand the fundamentals of the business and we, you know, we're betting on this market, et cetera. But like the number one thing, 80% of our scorecard is based on the entrepreneur. Yeah. And so when we're looking at that, a lot of people, at least myself, including when I was coming up, I thought like, I'm impatient. I would speak that over myself. Like I'm an impatient person, you know, and I wanted to be more patient. So the difference between somebody who's loyal to their wife and somebody who is not, is not the fact that they might have their eye get caught because that happens. They're human. You're going to have emotions, <laughs> right? But the difference between somebody who's loyal or not is whether they cheat, right? And so I think that it's the same thing with patience. It's the same thing with honesty. It's not, do you want to lie? It's, do you choose not to, despite wanting to lie? Right. And it's just like courage to the, you know, the famous one with like, it's not the absence of fear, but taking action despite it. And so I think a lot of those character traits, a lot of people, it feels like these amorphous things that we want to have and like take off the shelf and put inside of ourselves. And so we think that we need to feel a certain way in order to be a patient person or be a kind person or whatever. When, at least in my experience, it's been, you don't feel that way. And you take the action that a patient or kind or courageous or loyal or honest person would take despite the feeling. And that's, that, was a, that was a huge unlock for me in terms of understanding my stress levels, in terms of decision-making within the company. Like if I want to be a long-term thinker, then I have to, despite not wanting to, act in the interest of the long-term. And I think when I started doing that, the compounding of the businesses in general started to really unlock. I think it comes down to discipline, probably. Yeah, short-term, yeah. Being able to be uncomfortable in the short-term for whatever you want in the long-term. Yeah. 
absolutely. But yeah, the, in the final chapter, which you consider with acquisition.com to, to close the loop on that, the hard now is just, I would say it's, it's those character traits that I just went over, but just more. It's just the, the standard of patience is higher. The standard of discipline is higher. The standard of focus is higher. And so it's not, and, and even to further this point, uh, character traits are not binary, right? They're not, you are patient, you are not patient. It's how patient are you? It's not you're dishonest or honest, it's how honest are you? And so I think that maybe what was able to get me through Jim Launch Prestige Labs and Alan was maybe like a, a seven out of 10. And like to get to a billion plus, which is what we're on the path to do now, I gotta be a nine, you know what I mean? And maybe to get to 10 billion, I gotta be a nine and a half. And so at least that's my, that's, I would say that's what hard feels like is choosing the actions that I know is aligned with the person that I need to be in order to do the thing I wanna do, despite not feeling what, feeling like it. What types of books or podcasts or media are you consuming to help you to develop these views? Not many. I'm not super heavy on consumption, to be honest with you. I would say that the degree of my consumption is mostly, as silly as it sounds, our stuff, just to make sure that it's like looking okay. It's like, <laughs> I'd say like proofing our own stuff is like, the, I would say 70%, which sounds ridiculous, but it is. That's also because it's a very small percentage. Just to be fair, it's a small percentage of my time. And then the other 30% is like, if you looked at my Twitter, the, va the vast majority of the people that I follow are, is, is, is philosophy stuff. So it's like, you know what I mean? If you look at my Instagram, the only people that I'm really following are people that I want to just see what they're doing rather than consuming their content. I just want to see, like understand their strategy, their cadence, how they caption stuff. Are they doing anything new? Um, Cause I'm new into that world uh, in the content world. And so I just, I'm just trying to learn. And so that's, but I don't have any, um, specific people that I consume a lot from. I mean, most of my learning comes from doing. I had this myth that I used to believe that like, if I read a book, I would somehow have a skill. And I feel like when you read a book, you have like a general idea of like the vague outline of what the skill might be, <laughs> right? And so like you, you learn so much more from your first hundred sales calls than you will from reading every single book in the library on sales. Yeah. And so I think that that belief shifted actually when I was doing, um, when I was in that six month terrible period of my life where I was like deciding whether to stay or go, I read, I think like 10 or 15 self-help books and I realized that my life hadn't changed. And so then I almost like decried all of the, hopefully it's not too graphic, but like the mental masturbation of just like, I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm learning. But like, I wasn't really learning because it didn't actually affect my behavior. And if you look at behavioral conditioning, they say the definition of learning is that when you, you put the same condition and you have a different behavior. And so if someone does something in a condition, and then they learn something and then you present the same condition. If their behavior changes, they have learned something, right? Which either happens to reinforcement or punishment. That's it. And so I was consuming all the stuff and in the same condition, which means that I had learned nothing despite consuming a lot of content. And so once I realized that, I realized that behavior and action was the thing that actually got me to learn. And so I biased all of my activity towards that rather than massive consumption of information. And I figured I would learn more from doing than from learning how to do. And that ended up being true. Now you're creating content. How do you want people to consume your content so that they can actually just go and do things with it versus just feeling like they're consuming 15 Alex Hermosi videos and, and like they feel like they can check it off their list, but they really yeah. haven't progressed at all? Use and do. Like watch, do. Watch, do. I think our videos are more tactical than many of the videos that are out there. Um, and that's by design. And so my vision for the content was I want to make stuff that people would otherwise charge lots of money for and then just give it away for free. 
And um, at least from the response in the comments in the community, like that seems to be how it's received more or less. And so that was the goal. But the absolute, by and large, what I want everybody in Mosey Nation to do is consume, execute. And keep executing until you realize you hit another point where you need to consume more and consume the next thing. And then you can search for specifics. So it's like, if churn's high, go to my channel and search churn stuff. And then just try and watch the videos that are around churn. If you're like, I need sales stuff because I'm just getting on the phone with people and I can't close, watch the sales stuff. And keep, like, there's a, there's a concept of, like, drilling. Like, you can watch, like, there's, like, immersing yourself in something. So it's like for like sales guys, I want them to consume an hour a day of sales content because I want their subconscious, I want their discretionary time to be thinking about sales, but still the majority of their day is selling, which is that a system will grow until it is constrained and then it will grow no longer until that constraint is fixed. And so we just like, and when we look at the portfolio companies, usually like our expertise comes down to, can we identify accurately with the true constraint of the businesses and can we fix it? And if we can do those two things, then those are, those are companies that we want to take on immediately because we know what the first constraint is and then we can anticipate what the next one's going to be and then we know we can fix that too. And so a lot of times entrepreneurs get stuck or even employees get stuck because they don't realize the constraint of their system output is a skill deficiency, a trait deficiency, or a belief deficiency. They don't believe something's possible that is. Yeah. Or rather, said differently, they believe something to be true that isn't. And that's what's holding them back. I recently went on an anniversary getaway with the husband and it was beautiful. Here's everything I got for free. We got free business class tickets for an international flight, which meant, yep, you guessed it. I got free access to the lounge where we could kick things off with a glass of champagne. Then we got a free stay at a five-star hotel where we could relax and go to the beach. Okay, so now I'm sure you're wondering how I got it for free and you know I don't gatekeep, so here's the insider knowledge you need to know. I did it by signing up for a free Built credit card. Built is a credit card that lets you earn points just for paying your rent. And there's no extra fee. And when I say free, I mean free. There's no annual fee for the credit card, and they don't charge a transaction fee for paying your rent with the card. You'll also earn two times the points on travel and three times the points on dining. Once you get your points, you can transfer them to travel partners like airlines and hotels to then get the free business class flights or five-star hotels like I did. To sign up for this card, go to ericataughtme.com slash built. Erica is with a K and built is B-I-L-T. Or to make it easier, go to the link in the show notes. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash built. I want to take a little step back. So my friend, you were on his podcast three years ago, and it was so funny to me when I listened to the intro, because in the intro, it was like, Alex Hermosi does not believe in social media. He does <laughs> not have any social media. So what changed? <laughs> Kylie Jenner. Kylie Jenner changed my life. Um, I saw her on the cover of Forbes, and I was like, she's younger than I am, and she's a billionaire, and I feel like I know more about business, and I need to learn from that. And so I will study everyone. Um, the good, the bad, the ugly, people that everyone hates, I will study, people that everyone love, I'll study. Anyone who's making more money than me, I'll study. And so when I saw that, it was such a it was such a paradigm shift for me. I was like, how is this possible? And I mean, mind you, like at the time, for context, I was I was I was taking home, I think, do you know what year it was? I was taking home between 13 and 17 million a year personally mm -hmm. at that time. And I thought I was doing pretty well. And then I saw that and I just felt horrible about myself. It like ruined like a week of my life. But what came from that was then all of a sudden, I, like, to be honest with you, I didn't change anything after that. I was like, it's a fluke. Her mom's Kris Jenner. She organized her whole life. Okay. But then after that, 
Huda Beauty came out and then boom, she was at 600. And then after that, Conor McGregor, boom, he was at 600 with proper 12. And then The Rock came out with Termana and he's at two to 4 billion, depending on who you're looking at. And it just happened again and again and again. And I was like, I'm missing something here. Like my, I believe something that was true that wasn't. I believe that the only thing that you would need to grow a business was paid ads and outbound. If you do those things, it doesn't matter about anything else. doesn't matter your brand. doesn't matter about your content. You can go and sell shit and you can. That's the thing is like, there are beliefs that will get you to a certain degree and you absolutely can make money. You can be a, a decamillion. I mean, I was obviously a decamillionaire at that point, arguably almost a centimillion if you put the equities in, right? But for me to be a billionaire, I didn't understand brand and it was my big deficiency. And when I saw each of those, I was like, oh, I have to get into this, but I still didn't do it. The last, you know, soldier on this little thing was I went to uh, a thing with Dean Graciosi, who's uh, Tony Robbins, like right-hand man. All right, they're together. It doesn't matter. And we went to his house and he had had like three people that week who were like weird stalker, you know, weird stuff. And I was like, dude, how are you willing to put up with this? Like, I just, I never want to be that famous. I want no one to know me. I want to be rich as hell. And that's it. And I was very committed to that. And he said, if that's the price I have to pay to make the impact I want to have, I'll do it every day of the week. And he just looked at me and I just like, I just remember just feeling it in my chest. I have to do this. And so um, that was when I decided and I started making YouTube videos shortly thereafter. And that, that was kind of the beginning of me starting to post stuff with the intention of actually building a brand. And what was the, what did you have to assemble or get ready in order to do that? Did you hire a social media team or? Yeah, I didn't. Well, I had, I had infrastructure with Jim Launch, so I just had the video guy post it at the time. So I, I just did that because I was, that was easy. It was low lift for me, but I've definitely learned a lot about the content game in general. And what's funny is that the principles that I learned from outbound and paid ads, 100% mapped to content. And I still had to learn it as though I didn't know. And so like volume is still king. Like the more you spend on ads, the more money you make, the more cold calls, the more cold emails, the more cold reach outs you do, the more sales you make, the more content you put out, the more impressions you get, the more, like everything grows that way. And so, because like quantity is the only forcing metric for quality. Like the only way you get better at something is by doing it more. And so I had to do a shitload of it. Um, and that's, that's basically what we built over the last 18 months as I started just posting three times a week, just videos from a computer, which have been relatively, you know, notorious for being terrible quality, you know, and then slowly, you know, I added an editor and then I was like, okay, well maybe I should uh, do uh, a guy approached me. He was like, I could do shorts for you. And I said, okay, I don't want to do shorts. And he said, I will take, you have to do nothing. I will just take all of the stuff that's already out there and I will do all the work and I will post it for you. So you literally do nothing. I was like, okay, <laughs> sold. Um, and he did it and he did a good job. And so we started growing and I was like, oh, the short stuff's interesting. Okay. So like this is starting to work. And so once I saw that, that actually became kind of the blueprint for how we approached new platforms, et cetera. So we go, we find the person, the best person we can, we pay whatever it is that they ask for. And we do that with the explanation. We say it up front. We say, I'm going to steal everything you have. That's what I'm going to try and do. So I just want to be upfront. And I think it's going to take us probably between three and six months to do that. So you factor in what your LTV is for it to make sense for you. And if they're cool with it, then we're good. And our entire goal is not to just have them do it, but for us to study every aspect of what they're doing and why they're doing it so that we can bring it in-house. And so we've pretty much, I went, as soon as things started, that one vendor worked out, I basically did that with every platform very quickly. And then one by one, we started peeling them back in-house. And so right now we're probably two-thirds in-house, one-third vendor, and probably by, you know, six, six months we'll be 100% in-house. And I think now I saw on Think Media that you've hit one million followers in six months. Yeah, yeah, we've, yeah, and we've done even 
Yeah, even more, yeah. It's cool because media is compounding. And so I always look for compounding vehicles uh, in general. And so it was, again, like, like Dodo Bird Alex, like it took me a while to figure out that media in and of itself grows in a, comp in, a, in a compounding way. And I was like, oh wow, so this is not something that, like I always saw content where you post something and then it disappears, it's a waste. I, like when I was coming into it, I was like, why would I post something and then no one's ever gonna see it again? But what I didn't realize was the asset was the audience, not the content. Yeah. And that was my, that was my missing link. And so once I understood that, that's when I went all in on building the brand and doing the media stuff. So you don't want the fame from the social media. What do you want? I'm okay with the fame now. Um, there are cons to it, but I would say there are more pros than cons, at least at the level that I'm at right now. So I'm okay with it. I am still here to make money. And I always want to be clear because I don't want to be put into a corner in the future where people are like, he's trying to make, I'm always here to make money. That's, that's what I'm trying to do. But I also, because from the brand and the vision stuff that I've you know, learned as an entrepreneur, yeah. like telling employees like, hey, our whole goal is to make money, not very motivating, right? <laughs> and so the big reason that we do all the stuff we do, so we donated a few million dollars uh, to kids' charities for education, because I'm a big education guy. And so the big vision is like to document and share the best practices of building world-class companies. And so for me to have the credibility to, to be able to say that that is my mission, I gotta be able to back that up. And so the portfolio that becomes worth a billion and then 10 billion and then whatever it'll become after that is, is just to answer the question, why should I listen to you? Because it's at least my, my view that the number one question that everyone asks when they see anything, even if it's good, is why should I listen to this person? Because you have the, you know, the teacher who's saying dollar cost average in the S&P and then you've got Warren Buffett, they're gonna listen to Warren Buffett, even if the content's worse, just because they don't have to make the extra decision of should I trust this? And so yeah. it's actually less emotional effort to, because you, you actually don't have to put a decision filter. You can just take it as truth, which is, is it's easier for people. And so I wanna make it easy for people to learn and so I have to have the credibility to do that. now. Some people might say, you had a $50 million when you were 32, you'd already taken you know, almost 50 million in dividends before that point, like you have the credibility, but like I don't have the credibility for me. Because I want, like the fact that we don't have a vlog from Jeff Bezos from 1997 until now, crushes my soul. The fact that Elon only does the occasional weird interview, which is awesome, but like nothing else. I, long-term, am willing to sacrifice growth for our companies to make the content that we're making because I think it means more than I do. So a few years ago, when you were saying that no social media, you were at 17 million or so for personal income. Can you talk about how that's grown over the years? So it hasn't grown because COVID uh, was not good for gyms, unfortunately. You would have thought that gyms would have been totally uh, benef you know, benefited from, co from COVID and not being allowed to do business. But I think in 2018, uh, we did 26 million top line, 17 million. Uh, take home. And I also didn't understand the concept of like reinvesting in business or M&A at that point. So I was just like, cool. So 17 million in profit, I'll leave a million in the business. And then I will just scoop 16 million in my bank account. That's what I did. And then the next year we, uh, we reinvested more money into supplements and software. And so uh, we still grew though. We did 37 million top line. And then we did, I think 13 million is what I took out that year. And then 2020 was COVID, which was, you know, three months in. And we actually had planned to sell. We went to market the month before COVID started. Um, and so that sucked because it was based on 17 and, you know, 13 as the, as the, and with a growth rate, uh, going into it. But anyways, over the next, that year, I think we ended up taking home personally, like nine or 10, somewhere in there. And then the next year we probably would have paced the same thing. Cause the way COVID hit gyms, at least for us was like, it was a smiley face and mm -hmm. with January being in the middle of the smiley. So it's like, kind of like half 
fucked two years. <laughs> um, but because we were on an upper trajectory coming out of like January and they loosened some of the COVID stuff, we just pretty much started going straight up to the right. Um, and so we closed that deal in December of 21. And that was 46 uh, plus whatever we took on that year, which is probably around 10. And then, yeah, and that's, uh, now it's 2022. And so uh, we went super aggressive in acquisitions because that year in 2021, the reason I actually decided to go through the sale, I actually almost backed out of the sale twice, was because uh, I had done three deals that year, that year, and all three were going really well. And so I realized, I was like, I really like this a lot. And for me, like my big thing is, it's almost like if you wake up in the morning and you're not thinking about your wife and you're thinking about somebody else, like you need to fix that <laughs> one way or the other. <laughs> like you got to fix that problem. And so like I wasn't thinking about my wife being gym launch anymore. I was, I was thinking about these companies. I was thinking about growing them. And like I was starting to get excited about all that stuff. And this just wasn't as exciting for me. And I just saw a bigger vision for what I wanted to do. And so um, we did those three acquisitions. And then over the last uh, nine months, uh, we've done another eight. So we have 11 now. And so we do minority stakes. And so the portfolio right now does just under 200 million top line. We generally are between 20 and 30% owners of those companies. And they are usually uh, bootstrapped, profitable, growing, uh, cash flow positive because we run most, uh, they're usually, yeah, they're, they're very, they're profitable businesses. So I'd say around between 35 and 40% net margins on those businesses. And so that's what we do now. Is the hope that the social media will help you attract more companies that may want to take on more investment from you? Yeah, 100%. I just figure Warren Buffett had a great model. Let's do the same thing except add media. Like, it's, like I'm a big believer in like simple things. So we have, we have a strategy deck that's like, what are the need to believe for this to, to be true? So one is that Alex can gain a social media following. I didn't know that. So like, it sounds silly, but like I had a big list of like, well, if it doesn't work, then that's going to, you know, that's going to affect my <laughs> thesis. Right. So that was number one. Number two was that me making content will turn into deal flow for us. And so I didn't know if that was gonna be true. I didn't know if I was just going to make content and people were just like, cool, thanks so much. This is awesome. Um, but it did translate into deal flow. And then from there, the next need to believe was that I would be more popular in the future than I am today. And so if that's true, then we will get an increasing amount of deal flow in both quality and quantity in the future than we do now. Mm -hmm. um, the fourth need to believe was that we would be able to add uh, material or outsized returns or value through our own experience by taking on companies that fit our, we call it the VAM, but it's like our value acceleration method. So it's like if it's in the sweet spot of the VAM, then we should be able to deliver on that. And so right now, like the average portfolio company triples profit in the first 12 months. Uh, we average 4.7x profit in the first 24 months. Um, so we've delivered, you know, we feel pretty good about it, <laughs> but yeah. that was a need to believe. Like, you know, you, you, you know, come in obviously hoping and believing that you're going to do that, but especially because in a minority position, I don't have complete control. And so that was a little bit of something that I had to learn how to do and influence the right way uh, to get the founder on board for changes, et cetera, which to be fair for the most part, because of how people are coming in, it's not that hard, but mm -hmm. it was still a difference of do this versus I was thinking this might be something you'd consider. What do you think? Right. And so it's just a little bit different dynamic. And so those were the need to beliefs to get to where we are now. And I have more need to beliefs in the future, but I'll share those later. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think is the biggest threat to your success? Me saying something and getting canceled for some reason. Like that's, I mean, I, that's, that's what I think. I mean, th threats wise. Yes. Do I think I would adapt? Yes. But like in terms of like, cause I will either win or I will die. And so if that's the, if that's my base operating system, like I will adapt and I'll figure something out. It's just, 
I, like, I, can already, I was already thinking, I was like, what would I do? I was like, okay, well, I'd have a different figurehead. I'd have multiple personalities. We'd pump them the same way that we did with me. Like, I, like we'd work it out. But that would, be, that would be a dent. It is scary, especially people with cancel culture now. They just love to pile on about everything. Yeah. So I think in a single word, it's brand, like irreparable brand damage. Yeah. Is, you know, obviously I try not to do anything that, you know, that I think would do that. But that's, you know, that, that would be the, the single, the single bigger, bigger thing. But again, it's not even irreparable. I would just have to work around it. I read somewhere that your goal is to become the most jacked billionaire. <laughs> so why is that your goal and how do we get there? <laughs> I thought it was funny mostly. Um, but I figured it was just become a billionaire. And at that point, I will probably be the most jacked guy in the room. And so that's that was, it was kind of like default. Like I'll yeah. probably just, I can just be me and then be a billionaire and by default will be the most jacked billionaire. Do you think Jeff Bezos is jacked? Yeah, he's not more jacked than I am. Okay. <laughs> He's way wealthier than I am. <laughs> <laughs> he's more he's more financially jacked than I am, but he's uh no, but not not physically. Not yet. <laughs> Why is the billionaire thing your goal? I think it's 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 really just a milestone. It's way less about like the actual billion dollars, but I do think to the point earlier about like having the credibility um to like there there still has I've I, I could be unaware, but I haven't seen any like mega billionaires really try and build education for everyone of how to get all the way up. Not just like your first 10K, first 100K, first million, first 10 million, first 100 million. Like, I want to go all the way. Yeah. And, I mean, it's really the document they'll create. It's like, I want to go all the way and show every single step of the process how he did it so other people can do it. And I think the reality is, my hope is that we'll pave the way for people to be much bigger than I am. You know what I mean? Like, we've talked about this a lot, but like, you know, Gary, Gary didn't have Gary. Right, Gary just paved the way for people like us to go to go do what we're doing, and we learn from their mistakes and their best practices, and we don't have to wait ten years to learn it. He did because he had to figure it out, and then we just start today. You know what I mean? And the the fact that there's like twenty three year old multimillionaires and decamillionaires right now off social media, is just testament to the fact that the entrepreneurs who came before them laid the path. And so I have a tremendous amount of gratitude for those people. I also don't have the illusion that you know a lot of people are like the goat and they want to be the greatest of all time and. I think that if you're the greatest all time, then you failed. Because especially if you want to be a teacher of some kind, which is a relatively loaded word, but if you want to pass on lessons to other people, if you were the greatest of all time, then you failed. So the only way to be the greatest of all time is to not be. Yeah. <laughs> and to have set, set the stage for people who are younger, who I don't know, to beat me. And I got to be okay with that. And I am. But that was a mindset shift that I had to do. So like, this is just like, I'm going to do this thing. I think it's really cool. Because this is just what I happen to be really into. Like I draw mm -hmm. pictures about business. I write books about business. I make videos about business. I do business all day. Like it's what I like. And so that's what I do. And I'm very fortunate in that the thing that I happen to like also happens to be very financially rewarding. I don't know what I would do if I just like loved painting and I didn't like business. Like it would probably be harder for me. But maybe it wouldn't be. I don't know. Um, but this is just something that I love. And so I just want to document it. And I also partially document it for me because if I feel like I don't understand something, it bothers the hell out of me. And so... That's where all the frameworks and things happen is so that I don't have to remember it. <laughs> it's like I have to make a framework for this. It's like we're, we've, we haven't sent emails, which is ridiculous because um, we have a bunch of people who give us their email every day. And I say, someday I'll email you. But right now, I was like, oh, I'm going to have to write an email regularly. I have to have a framework for this. <laughs> like I was like, I have to do this all the time. And so, but then as soon as I have it, I'll just pass it to everybody else. And then they won't have to confront the thing and learn and fail for however many months and they'll just be able to take the template and use it and then immediately be that much further ahead than I was at their age. Yeah. That's cool. What would you say to the 20-year-old who's looking up to you and saying, I want to become a millionaire one day? What are the three things that they have to do to get there? You have to start. You have to do 
the same amount of effort that the person who you think you want to emulate has done. So if you do the volume of work that that person did, and if you're like, well, that person's been doing it for 10 years, then do it for 10 years. And you don't switch gears and you stay on the path that you're on because otherwise you have to restart over and over again. Because a lot of the, the trench knowledge comes from depth of knowledge, right? It's, it comes from putting, uh, having deep roots, you know what I mean, in a subject or a sector. And I know that that counteracts the whole idea of like sampling lots of things. And I, and I get that that's a struggle for people. It also is not false that somebody who started at 20 and worked for 10 years in the same industry versus somebody who started at 20 and jumped to 30 different things, the guy who did one thing for 10 years will be further along. The question is, what's the longevity? So if they did the, the one thing for the decade, it was, was it because they enjoyed the thing? Um, which then, if they hated it, then they do switch, but now they switch way later, and so then they, they do pay that cost. So the thing that makes this even harder is that you usually don't like stuff that you suck at. You usually suck at everything when you start. <laughs> and so I do believe that, like, if something interests you, like, you don't need to, like, I'm not even a big believer in, like, being good at it. If, it, if you just don't have to put effort into wanting to consume the thing, whether it's like, I really like video stuff, or like, I really like... I really like sales stuff. I really like marketing stuff. I really whatever it is that you find yourself reading. For me, I always liked persuasion. So like when I would like be in college, I like watched TED talks on persuasion. It was just interesting yeah. to me, and so it, it's not surprising to me that I ended up finding myself in kind of acquisition and whatnot, um, customer acquisition, you know, on a tactical level in the beginning. And so uh, if you find interest, then it's like you just have to strap in and accept the fact that you're going to suck for a very long time, comma, and that's okay. And it should be to be expected. And so I think if somebody's 20 years old, they need to expect that it's going to take a decade, number one. Number two, they have to start on a path and not convince themselves to stop. And then number three, see items one and two. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Alex Hermosi Taught Me. So what do you want people to be able to walk away from this saying, Alex Hermosi Taught Me This? Alex taught me that the feelings that I have are independent of the character traits that I want to espouse. And so if I want to be more courageous, it doesn't mean that I don't feel fear. It means that I act despite it. If I want to be more patient, it doesn't mean that I don't want to stop doing the thing that I'm doing. It means that I feel that feeling, I accept it, and then I continue on the path that I said I was going to do. And so I think a lot of it, we said it very briefly in the beginning, but it's enduring short-term discomfort for long-term achievement. And so if there's one thing that everyone who is listening to this does, it's that you start on the path and you do not allow yourself to stop. Thank you. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more from Alex, he has a YouTube channel that I'm going to link in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, it would mean a lot if you could take a moment to leave a review for the podcast. It really helps support the work that we're doing. Thank you for spending your time with me today, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.